Chapter 9, Logos and Digitization, by Walter Ong. 1. In this digitizing age of the computer, by a somewhat more than bimillennial hindsight, one can see something of the deep psychological history and prehistory of digitization reaching back to ancient Greek and its use of the term logos. What is noted here does not constitute the whole history of digitization, but it is a central and very human part of its history and prehistory. Because the term logos is commonly translated today as word, it is readily connected with the world of oral speech. But the history of the term is more complex than such translation suggests. The ancient Greek term mythos, which yields our English myth, at its root means anything delivered by word of mouth, and thus from the start was radically acoustic. From the start, it means word, speech, tale, story, and so on. The Indo-European root is mud or mud, and signifies to reflect, think over, consider, activities interior to the human being. The term logos, by contrast, comes from the Indo-European word leg, which is based radically not in acoustics and oral speech at all, but rather founded on spatialized, exteriorized, visual and or tactile metaphor. Leg is the same root which gives us our English term lay, as well as the Greek verb legen, of which logos is a cognate. In ancient Greek, legen means basically to pick up, gather, choose, count, arrange, and thus involves manipulation of discrete units. From this meaning, legen develops as an extended meaning to recount, tell, relate, that is, to pick out and lay matters in order by use of words. A multitude of terms in English and other languages cognate to the term legen, incorporate in various ways this idea of ordering things in space. For example, collect, collection, select, eclectic, selectively out of order, catalog. The Latin word for wood or firewood, lignum, comes from this same root, for firewood is something collected. The cognate Greek verb dialagen similarly means initially to pick out, to select, to separate, digitization from which its meaning is also extended to refer secondarily to discourse. It gives us our English term dialogue and its cognates. This sense of order, at root coming out of a spatial metaphor, remains operational when logos, the noun cognate to the verb legen, comes to be used, as it soon does, to signify also the spoken word. Logos refers specifically, if often only by implication, to the ordering potential in the spoken word, as against the word's more simply manifesting potential. As applied to mental processes, the noun logos means initially not just the spoken word as such, but rather computation, reckoning, account of money handled, hence treatment of cognitive matters in terms of discrete units, which are the basis of digitization. On the other hand, logos also develops a very generalized sense connected with discourse, coming to mean story, reason, rationale, conception, conversation, thought. Hence, its meaning of word, but a meaning with a deep and complex history. In a recent book, Human Communication is Narration, Walter R. Fisher, drawing on Isseling, as well as Versenyi and others, has traced nicely some of the history of Logos in pre-Platonic and post-Platonic Greek in a way that is helpful here. He points out that, as applied to human activity and human productions generally, by extension of its original sense of gathering or putting in order, Logos developed not only the very generalized set of meanings referring to speech and thought, story, reason, rationale, conception, discourse, thought, but an even more generalized sense, so that, quote, all forms of human expression and communication, from epic to architecture, from biblical narrative to statuary, came within its purview, end quote. 
These could all be exemplifications of Logos. Logos, in this extended usage, carried with it its original sense of ordering, ultimately, as just noted, as associated with the spatial metaphor, which all of these and many other consciously directed human activities enforce or imply. Thus, such seemingly diverse phenomena as speech and architecture might both be considered instances of Logos, because both exhibited ordering activity. They show what we today might think of as rationality, or as structure. As Logos developed from its original spatial, tactile ordering meaning to mean word, speech, discourse, it could be used more or less synonymously with mythos, which had started with such meanings rooted in the auditory world, not with the spatially grounded meanings that underlay Logos. Fisher goes on to note that the pre-Socratic philosophers, and even more Plato and Aristotle, undertook programmatically to oppose the synonymous use of mythos and logos, and to draw careful distinctions between the two terms. Plato's contrast between mythos and logos is discussed in detail by Havelock in Preface to Plato. If we consult Plato's Georgias, we find there that Socrates wants to use the term logos for speech, but objects to Georgias's use of logos to refer to speech generally rather than to speech precisely as a rational account. Much of the Georgias is devoted to restricting logos to refer only to rational, carefully ordered, today we might say scientific, discourse and thought. Fisher continues, quote, As a result of their, Plato's and Aristotle's, thinking, logos and mythos, which had been conjoined, were disassociated. Logos was transformed from a generic term into a specific one, applying only to philosophical, later technical, discourse. Poetical and rhetorical discourse were related to a secondary or negative status, respecting their connections with truth, knowledge, and reality. Poetic was given province over mythos. Rhetoric was delegated to the realm where logos and mythos reign in dubious ambiguity. A historical hegemonic struggle ensued among proponents of each of these three forms, and it lasts to this day. Poetry and rhetoric were less rationalized. They belonged more with mythos and our sense of myth as a kind of non-scientific narrative. The struggle between logic or dialectic on the one hand, the two were not always clearly distinguished, and on the other hand, rhetoric, to which poetic was commonly assimilated, rocked back and forth through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. In the Renaissance, it came to a kind of peak in Western culture when Francis I named Peter Ramus, Pierre de la Ramie, 1515-1572, Regius Professor of Eloquence, or Rhetoric, and of Philosophy, or Knowledge Regulated Entirely by Logos, such knowledge included the equivalent of our modern science. This academic appointment in Paris was to interrelate more effectively the two subjects of rhetoric and logic, that is, reductively, mythos and logos. The group of Regis professors whom Francis I founded at Paris would, after the French Revolution, come to be known as the College de France. Ramus's prestige was tremendous. He was the first dean of the Regis professors, and thus, by anticipation, of the today still active and prestigious College de France. The duration of the struggle between logic and rhetoric into the present day is attested by such things as the current fierce disputes in philosophy, linguistics, and language teaching regarding assignment of priority to scientific-type discourse or to rhetorically managed discourse. Such disputes have generated countless books and journals, such as philosophy and rhetoric, where the issues are discussed with careful scholarly acumen at times agitated to white heat. Is the human intellectual world and or life world governed at root by logic? that is, by the purportedly clean-cut scientific thought, or by rhetoric, that is, by less-than-clean-cut argumentative discourse between existent human beings, which not fully or formally logical, although not anti-logical, discourse involving, beside logical elements, all sorts of non-articulate elements, 
including the obscured, practical, operational elements. We have hinted that Logos, in its root meaning, is involved somehow in digitization, although all that Plato encompasses in Logos cannot be reduced simply to digitization, as is amply evident from Kenneth Seaskin's Dialogue and Discovery, a study in Socratic method. By digitization is meant here the treatment of knowledge in terms of discrete units. This includes, for example, quote, treatment of natural language in mathematical technological terms, end quote, such as we find in computers. Digitization means reduction to separate, numerable forms, to digits. Knowledge thought of as so reduced we commonly designate as information, or data, that is, what is given. The term data or what is given suggests not an oral, auditory world of knowledge allied to spoken words, the original habitat of mythos, that is, a world allied to verbalization, but suggests rather more directly a tactile visual world, a world in which items are somehow physically given or handed over to us, are somehow placed in hand, a world where manipulation is possible. Manus, at the root of manipulation, is the Latin word for hand, manipulus, the Latin word for handful. To conceive of knowledge as data, as digitizing conceptualization today commonly does, the Latin digitus means finger, is to conceive of it as something that can be handed around, moved around, manipulated. Ultimately, digitization today culminates in the computer with its common binary digitization, the reduction of knowledge, data, to the most basic, most stark, most simple of numbers, binary digits, zero and one, which a computer handles not by conceptualization, as human beings typically do, but simply by local motion, such as spatially separable units allow. Today, by digitization, we commonly imply the use of complex instruments or technological contrivances to process, move around, vast, oftentimes billions, of those most elemental units, counters, zero and one, or no and yes. Each bit of information on a digital computer is always the result of a choice between alternatives, zero or one, no or yes. Such bits of information a computer moves around with amazing speed and complexity, often in clusters or bytes. But in the last analysis, moving around or manipulating such information, zero or one, no or yes, is all a computer can do. The French term for computer makes the situation clear. In French, what English styles as computer is called ordinateur, that is, an arranger. 2. Now for an organic and psychological excursus. Digit, digital, digitize, and their cognates derive from the Latin term digitus, finger. This is no accident. The fingers are commonly and cross-culturally the first instruments of human digitization, the first instruments used from infancy for counting, processing knowledge numerically. Fingers are, of course, not numbers, but can be made to stand for numbers, as modifications of computer chips, which are not numbers, can be taken to stand for numbers. The concepts and or words 1, 2, 3, and so on are not visual tactile existence. Fingers are. They are things which can be used to deal with other things numerically, as separate units, data, givens, chickens, cows, ships, or what have you, or even, more indirectly, with distinctly conceived abstractions such as whiteness, democracy, and so on, in terms of something else, namely fingers, which can be used conveniently to stand for all these other things that they are not, including abstract numbers. Here in our fingers we have a kind of archaic antecedent of the computer. The computer is a thing, and the fingers are things. But the fingers are more. They are also a part of ourselves, not simply instruments or technological contrivances. If someone is hurting your finger, you can say, you are hurting me. As parts of ourselves, these archaic antecedents of the computer are familiar, not strange or foreign. And they are distinct from one another only toward their tips. At their bottom ends, they form a part of a larger whole, and that they are somehow one, united in my hand, 
and united to me. Digitizing items with the fingers thus does not merely separate the items at one end, but somehow also domesticates and humanizes them at the other, making them easy to live with and deal with, hooking them up with ourselves. What a wonderful arrangement for a child learning to count, to digitize. Here we have estrangement, frimtite or entfremdung, on which all method depends, as Gadamer, following Diltai, explains at length, but not entire, terrifying estrangement, because the fingers as counters function as separate from me, but not entirely separate from me. Our fingers make a big difference. The decimal numeric system, the dominant system across the world, appears to be based on the ten fingers. To arrive at a more sophisticated digitization, the reduction of all counting to combinations of zero and one, as we do for computerized digitization today, more than fingers were needed. What was needed ultimately was a technology, something outside the human body, as the fingers are not, something admitting of limitless sophistication, so that it could deal indirectly, even with words themselves. What was needed was first writing, next print, and ultimately an ordinateur, an electronic arranger or computer. Three. From what appears here, the concept of order, arrangement, seems to be tied ineluctably to a spatial metaphor. The Latin-derived English order, Latin ordo, connects with the Indo-European root ar, meaning to fit together. When the spatially grounded root leg appears in terms referring to intellectual activity, the idea of spatialized order is generally involved, as has been seen, dialect, elect, collect, and so on. Order is often a very desirable good and can be indispensable to intelligence and understanding. But to reduce intelligence simply to order is to trivialize intelligence. When we say we understand a matter in depth, we mean more than we can break it into ordered parts. Computers are not themselves intelligent, yet provide the ultimate in ordering. We often say that we understand another person. Personal relations are a deep human need and good, and they themselves can and do generate all sorts of order. But to try to reduce personal relations simply to order annihilates such relations. Persons are not things. To say that I have a personal relationship with you means more than saying that I am ordered to you. Means more than saying that I am ordered to or by you, or that I can dissect myself and you into neat pieces. With these reflections on the root meaning of logos and of the polarization of logos and mythos effected after the pre-Socratics by Plato and carried forward by Aristotle, it is possible to state a general theorem about digitization which connects our present computer culture in a deeply significant way, it appears, to the ancient Greek world. We start with the original spoken word, which is non-technological, produced by the unaided human body alone. The theorem is this. Each application of a new technology to the original, non-technological spoken word has clearly moved toward greater and greater digitization, radically binary, from the time of the ancient Greeks to the present time, in three readily discernible stages. That is to say, the computer is the third stage in binary digitization development, beginning with vowelized alphabetic writing and moving through print to the computer itself. Binary digitization of language and thought has been growing toward the computer for over two millennia. Needless to say, the foregoing theorem is not proposed to explain everything regarding the development of binary digitization. Other forces beyond those considered here are at work variously in various parts of Western culture, which is our basic concern here. Not to mention other cultures of the world. Sociological, political, philosophical, religious, and many other kinds of developments are in play. The theorem here regarding the application of technology to the originally vocal, non-technologized word is offered for whatever it is worth in connection with other considerations.
It does appear important, and what it refers to would seem to interact with many other developments and to make the whole more intelligible. The theorem might be considered as a partial hermeneutic of the history of verbalization and of other communication as well as of thought itself. After counting on the fingers, the first great move toward digitization to which we are attending here followed on the development of the technology of writing, and in particular on the development by the ancient Greeks of the first fully vowelized or vocalized alphabet and on the effect, described by Havelock, on Socratic, Platonic, Aristotelian thought. The second great move toward digitization, more intensive than the first, followed on the development of the technology of printing, and its consequences are evidenced most strikingly, though far from uniquely, in the work of Peter Ramus and his thousands of followers. The third great move toward digitization, far more intensive and spectacular, but no more real, than the previous two, has followed on the development of the electronic technology of the computer. This theorem is proposed first as assisting our understanding of the development of communication and thought, especially in its scientized form in the West. Application of digitizing technology to the word has not been the only factor affecting this development. Social structures, economic patterns, politics, religion, and many other factors have had their effects. But it appears that the application of the technologies of writing, print, and electronics to the word is intertwined with many, if not most, of the other forces of mutation in the Western human life world. Secondly, the theorem is not proposed as alarmist. The pattern it adverts should not be taken as threatening or unacceptable, but simply as indicating a state of affairs which deserves to be studied further, much further than is possible here. Thirdly, assigning Plato a major role in the movement toward digitization of the word is certainly not to minimize all of Plato's countless other accomplishments much less to reduce them all to forms of digitization, although it may variously relate them to digitization. The dialectic in Plato's Socratic dialogues involves much more than a move toward digitization. Finally, needless to say, the effects of the shift from orality to writing to print to electronics have not been exactly the same in all cultures, although they have not been entirely different either. Here we are attending chiefly to a central line of development in the West. 4. Of course, it is patent that the overall thrust of Plato's thought was towards some kind of total synthesis of truth. Yet, in the perspectives in use here, the new technology of writing marked Plato's thought and constituted the first of three definitive steps toward digitization. As has been seen, Havelock's preface to Plato and subsequent works by others have made it clear how Plato's insistence on excluding the poets from his Republic and on replacing their mode of thinking with the dialectic binary mode was a consequence of changes in thought conditioned by the greater and greater interiorization of alphabetic writing, and in particular of the vocalic alphabet which the Greeks had developed out of the initial Semitic consonantal alphabet. The use of the vocalic alphabet for writing promoted analytic thinking as against the more holistic thinking of oral cultures. As earlier noted, Havelock has pointed out how in Homer, and to a lesser degree in Hesiod, the drive of Greek thought was toward identification of the knower and the known, the hearer of the Iliad, and the Odyssey acquired the old-style pre-Socratic Greek education by identifying with Achilles and Ulysses and others, and thus absorbing the culture they represented. This identification was the deep message which the most highly developed oral verbalization, the epic, conveyed. The common public education, the earlier Greek culture provided itself in its use of language and thought. Plato's approach was different from that of the oral poets, whom he regarded as retrograde sponsor of mythos as against logos. Plato's approach employed a divide-and-conquer technique, not only in separating the knower from the known, but also in arriving at abstract conclusions concerning the known by a dialectical yes-or-no binary procedure, as in his carefully contrived Socratic dialogues. 
As has just been noted, Plato, of course, aimed ultimately at a grand synthesis of truth, and so did Socrates, who passionately believed in the use of careful discussion between human beings and, with this discussion, fostered constant concern with the ethical. Such concern with the ethical, as such, differentiates Socratic dialogue from simple digitization. Yet Socrates' thrust in the dialogues was to isolate issues and decide each item so far as possible in terms of binary yes or no, often by showing that the view opposed to his was wrong and by thus revealing the truth. Socrates and Plato wanted explanation. When you say what you say, precisely what do you mean? As Havelock has shown, even though Plato's text represents the Socratic dialogues as oral discourse, this is the kind of discussion directed by a mind formed in a writing culture. Socratic-type dialogue is not a feature of a primary oral culture. Logos calls for yes-no responses, as mythos does not, and as computers later would. The strength of the Greek drive toward yes-no responses is confirmed by G.E.R. Lloyd, who, in his Polarity and Analogy, has shown how, by circumstantial comparison with a large number of other cultures across the world, ancient Greek thought from the pre-Socratics on specialized markedly in differentiation, polarity. 5. The relationship of print to the formation and propagation of dichotomized patterns of thought has been worked out in detail in connection with the printed works of Peter Ramus, Pierre de la Ramée, 1515-1572, the French educational reformer and philosopher. Until our computer age, Ramus was perhaps the most avid promoter of dichotomization, binary digitation, for all human thought whom the world has seen. As compared to ancient Greek logic, medieval logic had moved toward greater and greater quantification, but, aided by the new invention of print, Ramus, in his own way, went spectacularly farther. He promoted digitization through printed dichotomized tables consisting of spatially ordered printed words. In earlier schematizations of logic in the early days of print, before this new technology of print had been fully interiorized so as to affect thought in depth, iconographic models of thought processes, including iconographic models of logic itself, survived. Thus, in his Logica Memorativa, Thomas Murner, 1475 to 1437, explain the structure and function of logic and pictorial symbols. Murner used such iconographic symbols as human and animal figures, bells to denote enunciations made with sounded words, weights representing affirmative propositions, ropes which stopped movement of the weights and thereby symbolized negative propositions, birds of different species to represent propositions with no common term, a schoolmaster with his switches to extract logical answers from the pupils, and so on. All these designs were related to one another in illustrations accompanied by a text to explain what logic was and how it worked. Some forty years later, when the effect of print had sunk in more deeply into the psyche, Ramus and his followers replaced such mind-boggling diagrams of his predecessors simply with printed, dichotomized outlines of words displayed in space, producing what were in effect precocious computer flowcharts. Explaining the organization of the logic of science, by splitting it up into various parts, all binary, these into further binary parts, and so on. Dichotomized outlines are not entirely new with print. They occur occasionally in manuscript before printing. But as compared to ordinary continuous text, which can be multiplied by dictation to any number of scribes for simultaneous copying, elaborate dichotomized outlines or other diagrams demand individual visual access for copying and are subject to many copying errors. They are hard to reproduce manually. With print, however, once an outline, however complicated, is set up in print-controlled space, it can be multiplied on a press as readily as continuous text. 
the almost incredibly widespread use of dichotomized outline charts by Ramus and his followers is thus a consequence of the new print technology. Ramus's outlines, made up simply of printed words connected by lines in flowchart form, divided logic itself into two parts, invention and judgment, then each of these into two, then each of the resulting divisions into two, each of these into two more, and so on, until the entire science had purportedly been entirely outlined in binary divisions. The digitization he applied to logic, Ramus insisted, also should apply to all organized human thinking on any and all subjects. Ramus's printed dichotomized outlines of everything imaginable, from the Hebrew alphabet to the life of Cicero, and even the bubonic plague. Ramus's mindset was recognized by his contemporaries as what we today would style digitized. The Duke of Guy in Kit Marlowe's play The Massacre of Paris gives voice to a widespread perception when he characterizes Ramu as a flat dichotomist. As Francis Yates has so well put it, Ramus practiced inner iconoclasm, substituting for Murner's kind of elaborate and elusive iconographic imagery mere printed words, arranged spatially in pairs which were subdivided into further pairs, until the subject was exhausted. The use of such printed charts by Ramus and his epigony was intellectually blockbusting in its implications. Ramus's followers were numbered in the tens of thousands, and the massive effects of his work, direct and indirect, in Western Europe and the American colonies, have not yet been traced entirely. His followers were, if anything, more rabid binary digitizers than Ramus himself. In 1618, Marcus Rudemeyer published in Bern his Idea Methodica, subtitled Analysis Logica, in which not only the subject headings but every single sentence and or word of the text of Ramus's dialectica, the term was used synonymously with logica, is spitted on dichotomized tables. Ramism leads directly to the linguistics of Cartesianism and of John Locke. 6. With the advent of electronic processing, the computer, of course, has carried to points previously inconceivable the digitization patterns adumbrated by Plato and his followers, and institutionalized more spectacularly by Ramus and his followers with the aid of print. Today, the seemingly unlimited possibilities of computerized digitization are being worked out still further ad infinitum. Recognition of the pattern and evidence now for well over two millennia since ancient Greece should make the digitization process endemic to the computer perhaps a little less threatening than it may appear to many. The computer is not an entirely new development. It represents the most recent stage in the technologizing of the word, which began with writing and most notably with vocalic alphabetic writing, and which was intensified by print. Each new technology applied to the originally spoken word restructures thought. As Havelock and others have done in the case of writing, and as I and others have done in the case of print, so, in his electric language, Michael Heim has undertaken to work out some of the noetic restructuring brought on by the advent of the computer. But it could be argued that this latest restructuring is no more drastic than that entailed when vocalic alphabetic writing separated logos definitively from mythos and took the first definitive steps into the modern scientific world by dislodging the word from sound and committing it programmatically, though never entirely, to space. It will be recalled that the concept itself of logos has deep roots in spatial order, from which it was extended to verbalization and thought. 7. A few more reflections are in order concerning what digitization entails. Treating of the ultimate thus far digitization found in the computer, Heim states that, quote, when something is digitized, it is interpreted as a sequence of numbers, numbers that have a precision that cannot be experienced directly in the original phenomenon. Though the original phenomenon may have a precision 
that cannot be reduced to quantities or numerical relationships. End quote. Earlier computers were analog computers, which dealt with materials not entirely reducible to quantities or numerical relationships. But analog computers have by now been replaced almost entirely by digital computers. With electronics, digitization is carrying the day in most areas of communication, from ordinary word processing through three-dimensional computer simulations back into the world of sound itself. With digitized sound recordings and sound production, and even digitized television, a thermometer can perhaps serve as a useful example of what has been going on here. A column of mercury in a vacuum tube can be compared to an analog computer. The mercury moves up and down in a way comparable to, analogous to the outside temperature. If the outside temperature is never fixed but always in flow, changing, the column of mercury is behaving the same way. If we impose a numerical scale on the mercury column, we convert it into a digital computer. Now the movement of the mercury is measured in discrete digits. It is calculated as moving from 40 degrees to 41, or to 41.5 degrees, or to 41.52 degrees, or to 41.528741 degrees, depending on how finely one wishes to divide the numerical units. Imposition of these units makes the instrument more useful, but the units also leave out something, or entail a certain falsification. For the mercury in the tube can be constantly in motion, never stopping at any of the digits at which we consider it to be fixed. High technology seeks to solve the problem here by digitizing into smaller and smaller units, down, let us say, to the millionth of a degree. The effect is that, to all intents and purposes, the difference between truly continuous motion and digitized motion can ultimately be disregarded. A few millionths of a degree makes ultimately no great difference to the human sensibility. Strangely, despite the neglect of the truly continuous motion and the resort to utterly minuscule falsification, extremely fine digitization can in fact make for greater human accuracy. Dealing directly with the column of mercury without digitization, dealing with it as a true analog of the real temperature presumably never fixed at any point, could not possibly be managed very exactly at all. Treating the continuous as non-continuous can be managed so as to provide tremendous advantages. We will have to bypass the complex, and at this point unrealistic questions, about the possible constitution of matter in exact digital particles moving in exact digital patterns. To sense what is at stake here, it may be well to take the instance of the clock or watch. Timepieces of this sort represent an early example of digitization, which remains perhaps the most spectacular example of all. For in the human life world, the least digitizable phenomenon would appear to be time itself. The time through which we move in our living experience simply has no clean-cut divisions in itself as time at all. Tempus fugit, time runs away. You cannot stop it. There are, of course, successions of days and seasons, but the break from one day to the next is not the kind of thing a clock makes it out to be. No one can find precisely the motionless instant at which yesterday clicked into today at what we consider to be midnight. You can get closer and closer to the hypothetical exact digitized instant, but the closer you get, the clearer it is that it cannot be found. For there was no motionless instant. Time was flowing without interruption. The interruptions we use, changes of light, of seasonal temperatures, and so on, are not time itself. They are occurrences in time. Time itself simply marches on. Now a clock or watch pretends that matters are otherwise, that somehow there are separable units into which time can be divided, hours, minutes, seconds, tenths of seconds, and so on. A clock or watch is useful and indeed indispensable today in high-technology cultures, but most cultures have never used clocks or watches, and many still do not. In high-technology cultures, we have made clocks and watches so much a part of our lives, so interiorized them in our psychic life, that only with gargantuan effort can we distance ourselves from them to sense what they really are and what time really is, 
independently of their measurements. The deep effects within the psyche of the digitization of time make themselves felt overwhelmingly in the limp watches of Salvador Dali's famous painting, The Persistence of Memory. Here, the faces of watches, regulatory instruments which digitize time, the unmanageable, the essentially undigitizable, are disturbingly deprived of their prim flatness and neat precision by being draped misshapenly and listlessly over furniture and other objects. In these distorted limp watches, which cannot possibly work, a deep symbol of the precision that marks the age of science based so heavily on interpreting reality in sequences of rigidly fixed numbers on the faces of watches involved further with geometrical figures, circularity, and so on, has collapsed. The shock to the psyche is profound, and it is no accident that this is one of Dali's most famous paintings in our digitizing age. On the occasion of his recent death, it was the painting that a great many, if not most, of the media accounts called attention to, without, so far as I know, any of the analysis just stated here. Perhaps this painting lies at the very heart of Dali's significance for his era. The retrospective title of the painting itself is informative, The Persistence of Memory. Human memory dwells in time and is more than just recall. It is, strictly speaking, non-digitizable, as is the case with time itself. When we remember something, the memory has always a context, and a variable context, not the same today as yesterday. Human memory belongs with thought as such. It is not computerized recall. 8. What does the movement toward greater and greater digitization in our culture imply in that restructuring of the human life world that we all sense is well underway across the globe? One of the results of the tremendous power of digitization in aiding verbalization and thought has been inevitably the dream of producing artificial intelligence, the dream that the computer will eventually be able to do everything that the human mind can do. There is a literature on this subject simply too vast to be engaged here. Some of the literature has been reviewed by J. David Bolter in his Turing's Man, Western Culture in the Computer Age. See also Dreyfus, Mind Over Machine although the literature continues to grow by leaps and bounds year by year. The present perspectives, however, suggest several specific reasons why the computer cannot match human language and thought. First, as has been seen, human language and thought are embedded in the nonverbal, the total human, historical, existential environment of utterance, with which they interact dialectically to produce meaning. This total environment cannot be entered into a computer. To digitize it would require infinite digitization. Second, Language and thought are grounded not only in what is said, but also in what is not said, in silence. This, again, cannot be digitized for computer processing. Thirdly, neither can the computer of itself enter into the personal dialogical relationship, which involves both consciousness and the unconscious, the total human environment. Artificial intelligence assumes that human intellectual processes reduce to the sort of thing that computers do so well, but the reduction is radically incomplete. Language and thought are only partly and superficially assimilable to digitization for reasons with which these reflections here have been dealing throughout. The totality of intellectual and verbal processes escapes computerization insofar as the totality is more than merely rational, beyond even the fuzziest fuzzy logic. Bolter argues well that synthetic intelligence would be a better term than artificial intelligence for the ventures being undertaken under this latter name. The computer can aid intelligence virtually without limit, but it is not intelligent and cannot be. Nine. The near obsession with hermeneutics in the academic world today appears to be a countervalent to the computerization, the digitation that affects us all directly and indirectly. For the digitization drive that makes high technology culture today and is spreading across the world as all cultures come more and more into the ambit of high technology has been accompanied by the intense concern with hermeneutics and related subjects of which we have been treating here. Digitization is a fractioning movement. 
it sections actuality and thought and language into smaller and smaller pieces, pieces finally so small that humanly we can no longer keep track of them, so that what we seem to have in mind is not pieces, but continuity, integrity, wholes. For these are always fractioned wholes, however insensibly minute the fractions are. Hermeneutics, or interpretation, follows a dialectically complementary pattern. It aims at defractioning, at merging at holistic apprehension of truth. As has frequently been noted here earlier, to interpret anything totally requires knowledge of everything, since everything relates ultimately to everything else, not digitally, but existentially. As has been seen, a closed system of any kind is impossible. When you exclude an explanation for practical purposes in the given situation, you may be finished, but on further grounds, grounds not worth traversing at the time, but still there, further questions are still possible. Total explanation, which no one realistically envisions or aims at, could conclude only when all is related to all. Hermeneutics, in some way, ambitions ultimately to embed everything in the seamless web of history. It is arguable that both an intense commitment to digitization, fractioning, and an intense commitment to hermeneutics, holistics, are equally marks of our age. Moreover, digital computers are being used to expedite hermeneutics, although of themselves they necessarily fall short of being truly hermeneutical, and hermeneutics is being used, as here, to deal imperfectly with digitization, to try to relate digitation non-digitally or trans-digitally to everything else. Perhaps nothing hints more directly at how dialectically human thought is structured than this dual allegiance here. Allied to the totalizing effect of hermeneutics is the totalizing concern with the universe manifest in the ecological mentality that marks our age. Perhaps a final personal reflection would be in place here. The late Professor William K. Wimsatt and I were dear friends. I dedicated one of my books, Interfaces of the Word, to him, noting in the dedication that he had once told me, I am a spaceman, you are a time man. As a spaceman, William Wimsatt was passionately committed to logic and to collecting, putting together in spatial order. Remember that the root of logos refers to gathering, collecting. Many sorts of things. Native American Indian artifacts, postage stamps, rock specimens, all duly polished in a polishing drum and then displayed. Portraits of Alexander Pope. His last book was an inventory of portraits of Pope, all arranged in order of their relationship to one another. I, too, am in favor of logic, but I like to remind myself that logic is an afterthought, and I feel sure that Wimsatt would agree. He and I both believed in both time and space, although we might tend to specialize differently. In many senses, logic, as formally conceived structure, is an afterthought. Human beings had to do a lot of thinking, hundreds of thousands of years of thinking, before they discovered following on the development of the fully vocalized alphabet some 2,700 years ago, what we now call formal logic. Logic applies to what has already been thought, in the sense which Gadamer has hammered down. There is no completely logical method for setting up a way to get into full truth. We can keep our thinking and experiments as logical as possible, but the truth has to be worked out to some degree at random and then tested for logicality after we have stumbled onto it by ways which may well involve some logic, but involve much more besides.